everybody, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. It's August, so we are in the middle of the donation drive that only happens once a year over at the Wide Angle Podium Network. Did you know that donations earn you a minimum of 50 watts of hashtag happiness watts? Indeed, a whole 50. 50 <laughs> happiness watts. You can't get that with any kind of training. No interval will get you that. Not in this short of time, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, definitely we want to encourage you to go over and check that out you know it's not easy for everyone to find an extra five ten dollars as a one-time or monthly donation but there's lots of options there uh, and they all come with some sort of bonus so you might get a sticker pack you might get water bottles you might get two water bottles at the top end I, I keep coming back to this Adam Meyerson saying your name live on his show the Meyerson line I mean we could also say your name it's it's not to say that we can't we it's will true. we will shout Adam out Adam Meyerson the or Molly Herford could be saying your or name on their shows I will say whoever's don't name. sell yourself so short honey we'll we'll put that in if you donate $15 I will say your name I don't know if we can actually do that but that's we'll add that we're gonna in. make it happen but at $50 I believe it's a $50 donation you can do that the other thing to consider is that you can also sponsor these. There's a few big companies coming on board, and they're sponsoring even some of these podcasts now, and we're getting sort of these you know, advertisements during the podcast. So that's exciting. So if you have a business or something, why not give to the network, this wide-angle podium network, but also get a little something for yourself. Not just stickers and bottles. Those are sweet. But you could also get your business you know, promoted on, yeah, on any one of these shows. True. You could choose all the shows. You could choose just one of the shows. Now, we should also back up and say that the Wide Angle Podium Network is a network of podcasts with more than just the the Meyerson line and the Consummate Athlete. There's also Crosshairs Radio, which we really love. Uh, there's the Slow Ride Podcast. There's a ton of other really cool, mainly cycling-oriented content. But did you know the Kids Don't Follow is actually about music? I did know that. Yeah, so if you're looking for something with a bit of music and then you want to combine that with some you know, Tour de France information... I said that extra... I love how you say France. That, that was my best Bob role. Fr Tour de France. France. So if you wanted that, you can definitely check out the slow ride. A lot of my coaching clients really like the slow ride. It gives, you know, breaks down a lot of the, the latest racing information. Um, but yeah, definitely checking out the Meyerson line. There's a lot of his, you know, people he's interacted with over his professional career. And he, you know, he has a very interesting perspective and may offend you, but he also might inform you. So it's worth checking out. He might out do both. Well. So definitely some really good ones. Uh, just recently listened to the one with uh, Ryan Aitchison, who's a Canadian but a crit racing superstar. Uh, so his interaction with Meyerson's very interesting. They're talking a lot of, about crit racing, and you might even learn something there that'll help you in your next crit or even just tight pack racing, pack riding. So definitely that Meyerson line is worth checking out there and maybe even supporting. Absolutely. And if you're a donor, you get access to bonus content. I know a lot of you are super stoked for the cyclocross season, which leads me to saying that our bonus episode actually features Jeff Proctor, who uh, is the head developmental coach for a bunch of the USA Cycling juniors. And he has some pretty awesome secret intel on how they train and travel and get ready for World Cups. Uh, so that's a pretty cool one, and you can only get it if you're a donor over at Wide Angle Podium, which you can find at wideanglepodium.com slash donate. And you can do a one-time donation, you can set it up to do monthly, uh, whatever you can do is awesome and will keep the Wide Angle Podium network going. Um, we recently joined the Wide Angle Podium network and we were so excited about it. So it's really cool that we kind of got in right around the time to help promote it and to make sure that it keeps going, which would be great for us. Yeah, and definitely so you understand, you know, I didn't really quite get why the podcast network was important, but it's just like your NBC for television or your NPR for radio. These networks help individual shows get more access to things like for us hosting, so hosting more podcasts each month. They also give us access to things, you know, just for promotional stuff, whether that's getting it out to more listeners or graphic design or different things like this, just tips on how to podcast better. Maybe for me to stop saying, um, we can, Aw, you're not so, that bad. So when you're paying, you're actually paying me to stop saying, um, mm. as much as I do. So I pay a thank, lot of money for that. Thank you for that. Uh, there you go. Um, uh, <laughs> in, indeed. So if you do donate during, you can donate at any time, but you can also donate during the drive and you'll actually get entered into a drive for some really cool stuff. So you're actually gonna get sent a, a number plate, I believe, that will then will we'll draw a number. 
and indeed you'll be entered to win a prize pack that has a lot of cool stuff i believe including one of your books mm-hmm. maybe a couple of your maybe books, a couple of them yeah so i mean that's we're getting into some pretty good value return there uh, especially if you win yeah well and especially if you have problems with saddle sores in which case my books are like godsends it's true okay <laughs> so that's that uh we'll assume that you guys are going to go over to wideanglepodium.com slash donate slash donate or just wideanglepodium.com. You'll see the donate button right there and just check it out. And if it doesn't fit into your budget right now, we understand. Just give us a subscribe and we'll call it even. I like that. Good good upsell at the yeah. end there. I think that's a downsell. Uh, a little bit of both. Anyway, enjoy the show. Everybody and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We were pretty psyched this week. We uh, we finally got Dean Golich on the phone. He is one of the head coaches over at Carmichael Training Systems, but he has been hard to reach this month because he's been down at Rio for the Olympics. So he's finally home and took some time to chat with us. Yeah, we were really excited to get to chance the chance to talk to Dean. Um, I've always really looked up to him. You know, I tell a story about how one of my first trainers came with a video where he was sort of directing um, a bunch of the Trek athletes through a workout. And, uh, yeah, we have some really good conversation about where Dean came from as far as education, who he worked with. He got to work with Ed Burke and some other real high-end names. So we talk about the value of, you know, working with really high-end people and getting that experience versus the value of education. Um, we talk about his experiences managing teams, his experiences working for CTS. Um, yeah, we, we really cover the gamut, some really specific training stuff with uh, TSS and comparing uh, TSS to some other ways to quantify training. Um, and some more general stuff that works for kind of any level athlete. We talk a bit about uh, power to weight, and I think that was actually one of the most interesting parts for me was talking about his take on his philosophy, I guess, on weight loss and yeah, how, how that stacks how Dean up. deals with body composition, and yeah, it was really good. We talk about Rebecca Rush's uh, forays into other sports or crazier forays into mountain biking i guess with yeah. her climb up Ma- i guess that's Mount true Kilimanjaro. she did ride a bike for some of it yeah but we're all, we all hold on to that bike for a long time i think it's i mean she literally held on to it for a long much, time as yeah. she walked up a mountain with it yeah so yeah so and then we talk a little bit too about the other athletes he works with he works with some motocross and some nascar athletes so we talk about a little bit about their training as well yeah there's lots of good stuff in here but let's get on to dean enjoy the episode uh, we're here today with Dean Golich um, from CTS Training Systems. Dean is the head physiologist, um, coaching lots of different athletes and some really high-end athletes. Um, I always tell the story when talking about Dean or something that I've heard Dean say um, about sort of when I was getting started. I had a Cyclops trainer, and Dean was um, on the video with Roland Green and Allison Sider and all the Trek team at the time. and. They're all on the, the screen, and they were, Dean led everyone through this workout. It was like five by two minutes, and we were, I, I remember I think I did that video for years, just like all through the winter. So um, big thanks to Dean for getting me through, and I'm excited to talk to him today about all his experiences. So all of your athletes can blame him for... Yeah, like, the, why the brutal. five by two plays <laughs> such a large role in my coaching is because of Dean. So Yeah, no one's ever positively talked about five by two on, two off, okay. ever. Well, I'm a, I'm a little different. Most people will agree. So yeah, I, I love five by two. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so Dean, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I thought to get started, could you just give us a bit of a, a rundown? I know it's there's lots of education behind you. Could you give us sort of a, a rundown of where you've come from as far as an education certification standpoint? Yeah. So that's now that I'm older, that's an interesting topic. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in sports science. I guess it was physiology at the time. And then I went to graduate school and I have one class and I wrote the thesis and did it, but I never finished it. I, um, they offered me the job that I wanted. And so I just took the job and went on with it. And here I am 20 years later. So I was very lucky at the time I was, uh, intern at the U.S. Cycling as a physiologist there, 
And then I got hired as a physiologist. And during that time, the school and the U.S. Olympic Training Center were in a cooperative with uh, University of Colorado and actually in Colorado Springs. And my professor was actually Ed Burke, who, you know, was kind of the hero of cycling at the time. And my undergraduate kind of professor and so on was Dr. Now, Dr. David Martin, who led the Australian Institute of Sport in Cycling. So it was kind of interesting. I never got my master's degree, um, but I had all those people around me. And I worked with U.S. Swimming because they had all the blood testing. And then Jeff Broker, who was doing all the team pursuit stuff, was our biomechanist. And then Ed Burke and David Martin. So I was really, really, I thought everyone just had this kind of, you know, education and professors and everything else. And I didn't realize it till like 10 or 15 years later that people don't get that experience in college. So I was super, super lucky. There. Yeah, it's so funny because I, I was very lucky. I worked with a couple coaches coming up, um, you know, and the, and even the, the one main coach, Steve Neal, who I worked with, he worked with like Hunter Allen a little bit. And we, you know, he, he was always looking for like, opportunities to work with other people and talk to other people and when people ask me about like I took kinesiology as an undergraduate and you know it's I am always like you know you should probably just find people who are really smart and work with them doing what you want to do and you know it should work out but well it's really odd because if I had to do it over again I don't think I would do it any different unless I didn't have those people around so I was super lucky that I could do blood testing on, say, USA Cycling Junior Camp or even a senior camp. And then I just took the blood right over to U.S. Swimming and they had their own facility and um, the measurement devices for the blood. And I just went over there and did it myself. And I, I mean, now that just doesn't happen. So, yeah, super lucky. because of like regulation and, the you know, trying to lock and the down. cost, too. Right. The U.S. Swimming doesn't even have that lab anymore. They farm it all out. So the same people aren't doing it. So, yeah. Like I said, it's not by design. It's by luck. But, yeah. yeah, the timing, right? That's what, you know, the time and when you come up through something, you know, you can't necessarily repeat the same path. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That's awesome. And so when did you get involved with CTS? Was that sort of... So let's see. <laughs> Man. <laughs> so I was U.S. Cycling... And then I went out um, on my own for a while. And at the same time, I was consulting with the GT mountain bike team at the time. And then I ended up managing the GT mountain bike team all the way through. That was started in 94, then through 2000. Um, Yeah, 2000 was the last year of GT mountain bike. And then that's when I joined Carmichael Training Systems at the end of 2000. Yeah. Okay. Let's so GT, I'm trying to remember who was who were the big riders on GT and two. Like, so we show? had you know Allison Dunlap. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and Steve Pete. I, I mean, we had riders from like six different countries. We had six riders on the downhill side and five to seven at different times on the cross country side. And so the you know the U.S. athlete was um, Allison Dunlap, and then we had a number of others. But I worked specifically with Allison, so over the years. Right. Yeah. You were you coached Allison, as right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. 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 And she was national champion. Her the big one that everyone talks about is always the one right around September 11th, right? She won in the U.S. world champion. World yeah. champion, right? Yeah. 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 Don't come on now. <laughs> Jeez. Right. That was a big difference between national and well, well, but it was in the States, right? So that was like... It was. It was in Aspen was the world championship that year, and it was right after September 11th, and they were deciding whether to do it, you know, because of honoring the um, victims of September 11th. And But they ended up going forward, and she won the race. And it, she actually won the overall, too, of the whole World Cup. Yeah, I was going to say that that one day probably doesn't even do close to justice of her career and the accomplishments that I mean you guys had with that but yeah it's interesting you always want that one day to prove you're the best in the world Mm -hmm. and then there's the overall series championships the national championships and not to demean those by any means but you know once you've won so many of them then you want the world and then you want the olympic and so on but um yeah we had a great team I think we won the overall team titles and downhill um we, it was a it was a great time, and at that time, mountain biking was really 
popular. We had tons of support, great budget. It was, you know, like everything, a little stressful, but it was, it was good. So you actually, you were doing a management role though there as well? Yeah, I did management and coaching then. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. so, so what was that like taking on the management role? Cause I mean, given what you said sort of was before that, um, very education based, very physiology sort of training based, what was that like? And how well, did you, how I did think you step it's born out of ignorance, right? So you're like, <laughs> these people don't know what they're doing, so I'm going to do it. Well, then you realize they know a lot more than you think they did. And yeah. so it was more of me trying to control everything rather than actually wanting to manage. It's Because then I'd like, why would we travel on this day it's, if it's best for jet lag? Right. Or why would we do this? But then you start looking at budgets, money, and everything else and then you start to realize that those people aren't quite as dumb as you thought they were but yeah. that that's why i went that direction is it was more out of a control issue now i'm trying to give up more control and let people do it rather than take more yes i think there's that period when you're you're learning and becoming wiser and older where you you think that that's the way to go and then eventually you get older and you just want to do the one thing or two things <laughs> that you actually enjoy and are good at i guess but right and that's so far now i've been really lucky to have about 20 years now of, of coaching and physiology and people keep asking me how I I have one good friend that's actually a director of performance at one of the national NGBs and he's like I don't know how you did it and without trying to move up within the um, organization or um, some other entity and I'm like I know what I'm good at and I want to stay at it and then I read this paper just recently that's really important within the corporate world that they keep promoting people right out of what they're good at and I was like see I can't do that so yep. yeah yep. yeah yeah it's funny we always want that like more right and it's so hard to just like leave it at good enough yeah or Correct. where it's right anyway yeah yeah Interesting. So speaking of good enough, you were just at the Olympics. Um, so what I wanted to talk about there was, was there, you know, it's, it's very hectic for you. There's lots of athletes running around. Who were you down with? I guess let's get the context for why you were down. Yeah. So I have two athletes, which was Mara Abbott with, for the USA on the road, um, cycling side. And then I had Katarina Nash on the mountain bike side for the Czech Republic. So, yeah. Wow. So now did you, were you were there then obviously for the mountain bike race and that was Saturday for the women? No, I left, um, on the 14th, the 15th, um, because I couldn't stay the whole month cause obviously I had some work to do and I was with Katarina for the last Olympic. Well, this is what her number five. Yeah. Geez. So I was with her in London. And so then I was like, I've never been with Mara and she's never made the Olympic team. So I said, OK, I'll go for her. And Katerina, you're on your own, you know, other than normal right. communication, electronic communication. So, yeah. Right. She's really nice. Yeah, I've met her a couple times at different races and we actually got to ride in B.C. Um, when was that? Last last fall. So. Yeah, so she's a good person. I try only to work with good people. <laughs> so it's a good rule of thumb again. I think yeah. as, you, as you get older, you start realizing that it's not worth it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And so far, I learned that lesson real early. Well, well, I didn't learn it. I just realized it early. And I've been really lucky that most of my athletes are good people, too. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then while you were down there, um, was there anything that surprised you as far as like trends or, you know, things you saw people doing that seemed, you know, new or different or exciting well i think in the cycling world we're actually ahead of most other sports as far as the measurement how diligent controlling things and what surprises me every time about either a world championship in different sports or an olympics is how insecure and reactive they end up being the month the week or during the olympics Yes. Uh, and that's, it's like all of a sudden, hey, we need to do this tomorrow, which is completely different than they've done their whole career. Mm -hmm. Or you should eat this today when you've never eaten it before. That all, I sit back there. It was funny because the hotel we stayed at was right at the finish of the cycling race, road race, the triathlon. It was at the start of the open water swim. So anyways, I was sitting up there having breakfast and one of the coaches from a different sport came up there with their athlete to watch one of the events starting from the female version or the female um, side of the sport. 
and was like, oh my gosh, we have to do this. We got to change this. We're going to do this different to his athlete. And it was the day before the Olympics. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, this is crazy. What are you doing? Yeah. And then he's like, I know you're sick, but we need to do this. We got to get a doctor, but this. And I was like, this whole thing is falling apart. You don't know what you're doing, <laughs> which oh things gosh. we would never do in cycling or I would never do personally. So that that's, it's never, it's a trend that occurs t- for the 20 years that I've been involved in it, and I never can get used to it. I just want to take the athletes aside and hug them and say, it's going to be all right, just go race tomorrow. Do what you've always done, and it'll be fine. You should have thought about all this about three years ago. Oh, my gosh. They should hire you to just do that, just walk around to all of the different hotels. Hugs from Dean, yeah. Yeah, there's a person with the U.S. Olympic Committee who's there and they oversee a number of sports. And I said, you know, we need to stop worrying about coaching the athletes and we need to start coaching the coaches. Cause it's, and I understand where they're coming from. You get so insecure and the moment starts to get so much bigger than it really is. Cause you feel like you're the center of the universe. And a lot of the athletes and coaches think they are anyways, <laughs> me included sometimes, but well, you, I was going to say, just with you leaving before Katarina's um, race, I mean, it sort of demonstrates that, right? Like, she's a professional and has raced many times, you know, and she's got used to making decisions when she needs to. But, like, you being there isn't necessarily going to help that day, right? It it shouldn't because you can't be there every day. So Yeah, if you were a good coach, you should teach the athlete how to teach themselves because – I, that, I guess that's the secondary or two, 1A and 1B. And 1B is that then the athlete is so dependent on you that they, that they can't make a decision or an appropriate decision at the time when everything either goes to hell or is actually going right. They don't know what to do because of the dependency, and that's a bad trend. So, yeah, yeah. and that's a recipe for failure. Can you yeah. think to the day-to-day, like how do you prevent that athlete reliance, like, What's interesting you talk about Katarina is that if you saw the text message, you'd be like, this guy's just like an idiot or a cheerleader. And I feel like that sometimes, too, because I don't talk about going downhill anymore or how to take a turn or any of the stuff that we used to talk, what your tire pressure is or any of that. You kind of know it now after so long. And then once you get you, you get I, I guess let's use tire pressure as an example. You get so bogged down in the minutia of it that pretty soon that's all they're thinking about as opposed to like, hey, just relax. Everything's going to be fine. These are normal feelings that you're going to go through. This is how the nervousness at the start line will be. Everything's good. Um, Have a good day. Let me know if you need anything. And it's so after so long, it's more support rather than really coaching or technical aspects of it. Mm -hmm. You should have done your coaching from the very beginning, after two or three years, and most of the athletes that I've had go to the Olympics, I've been with them between eight and ten years, it only takes two or three years to kind of teach them all the technical stuff so that they can adapt and improvise. Then after that, it's more trying to refine things and be good at the right time. So, yeah. And usually telling them to stop. Just stop riding for, you know, a day. Take a break. Take a break. Yeah, it's yeah. very rare that I ever have to say do more. It's always do less. Yeah. Yes. And awesome. the summary to that is that you what got you to the top, and I say this to the athletes all the time, what got you to the top is generally what keeps you from staying there because that obsessive, compulsive drive to succeed is once you get up there, then you want to continue it, and it's never good enough, where third used to be good, then second, then first, now you're first, now what? Well, now I need more first, and so pretty soon it gets into a revolving snowball rolling down, or, well, in this case, it's if it would roll uphill, and they just keep trying to push it and push it, and then they want to do more and more, and then the results are, even when they get second, see, it's not good enough, where second used to be really positive experience. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, anything else at the Olympics? I know the cupping. Th- did you see anything with this cupping? Everyone seemed excited about cupping. There's a Canadian guy that I kind of refer everything to, and uh, and he's about all the frauds and. Um, oh. Tim, is it Tim Caulfield? Oh yeah, Caulfield. Yeah, yeah. 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 If, if anyone just follow that guy. There's a number of other resources that I go off of about um, homeopath. 
I got to be careful here. So, <laughs> I know what you're. I know. I know where you're going. I'm on the same page. But yeah, yeah for sure. Substantiated um, trends or support, and this is what happens: is the insecurity ends up getting so high that yeah, there is a placebo effect with a lot of things. And if people think they're working, I mean, there's Dr. David Martin has done a lot of stuff that there's a even when they measure some excitement in the brain or um, patterns in the brain that if you go out on a date and you tell a girl that, hey, I just bought this $5,000 bottle of wine, it doesn't even matter if it's a $100 bottle of wine. Already, it's I think it's the frontal cortex is excited in their brain just because they think a certain way. And so there is there is some points about placebo effects and positive talk, but I am completely the opposite side of opposite side of these type of support trends or yeah. dietary strategies or cupping techniques or and unless I know they've been scientifically proven um, kind of time and time again, I'm pretty old school as far as what I do. <laughs> yeah, it's the basics. Like it always comes back, and everyone wants there to be something magical, right? But it's like you know. Did you recover, you know, for the last little bit? Like, you don't need cupping. Like, you just need to take a break. Like, Well, I think what's scariest about the cupping is, like, I read a lot of, like, women's health and, like, fashion and whatever kind of sites. And the most I saw about cupping was actually on those. Where it was like, yeah. Olympians are doing it. Should you try it, too? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you, I'm, I'm telling you, if there's, a, it's that Tim Caulfield has a great thing on it. And it's it's so bad because people are influenced by the Olympians and they are influenced. But I'm telling you, cupping isn't why Michael Phelps won his like 40th gold yeah. medal or 40th medal, Olympic medal. It's And so you get sidetracked on those things. And it's the same with a diet trend or anything else is you get so focused on something that you actually can do rather than can you go up this hill hard enough and do you have the talent to do it? And so far in my career, generally, I've found that people know what they need to do to succeed, and they're just not willing to do it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's that, it's kind of simple. You have to have the genetic ability, then you have to have the discipline, and then you have to have the will. But a lot of people don't have any combination of those things. And it's not negative, it's just then you start grasping at straws, and I've seen that they grasp it cupping they grasp at all kinds of things and it's a slow downhill trend for them because then it goes to diet or then it goes to whoever and it it could be a person as well like this coach made this person successful so i'm going to go to them and that's a that's the same thing as cupping in my opinion Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's tough with that um so let's move on the You've coached a lot of female athletes. Would you agree that sort of a lot of your athletes would be more females? Um, yeah, over the years, I guess as a whole, it's ended up being like that. Not again, not by design. I don't know how I got into that. So, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had this. You know, this is a question that I think a lot of coaches can struggle with, and uh, well, coaches and athletes. Coaches and athletes. But the, as far as the discussion of you know weight loss, body composition, power to weight, how do you handle that? Uh, I guess specifically with your female athletes, but it's also relevant to males for sure. Yeah, I think obviously it's getting more and more. Um, whether the debilitating is the word that comes to mind in the male um, side of things, I think we already knew the negative impacts in the female side of it. So I don't see anything positive in the power to weight ratio in the past with female side. And now I see it even being more negative in the male side of it. The way I deal with it is generally I don't deal with it. So I don't ever try to change the power to weight ratio overtly with weight if that makes any sense i try to keep on a a balanced diet which yeah it's so simple and everyone's like no but i need something no we just kind of eat a balanced diet and move on and then um more power i'm all about training and and getting more power and maturing over time and trying to reinforce that and support the time and the development of the athlete rather than any 
short term. And the reason I say short term is that a lot of times, yeah, you can lose weight and you can gain power to weight, but then it comes with a whole different set of problems that hurt the long term development of the athlete. And I know that's what no no one wants to hear this, and no one needs, certainly at the elite level wants to hear it. But I I just reinforce it every day. I don't engage in it. I don't. Um, yeah, it it becomes very personal, and that's when you have to have a really good relationship with your athlete. And what may look on the outside at us a, a certain way may not be as positive on the inside. So I try to correct some of that. And then if I need external help um, with too many weight issues, whether they're male or female, um, then I get external help. So, I think that makes and it's sense. not nutritionist, but more like psychological or mm-hmm. sports sports psych or, that makes or real, like not even sports psychological, but real psychological Actual. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes sense. Like the, you're kind of playing the long game, right? Like a balanced diet and trying to up your power should put you at the proper weight for that power anyway, right? <laughs> Correct. And over time, you'll mature. It's just so hard that when athletes start, they're not mature in the sport. When you look at the – say you look at Kristen Armstrong and she's 43 years old and how many you know, miles she's put in – and then you look at some of the young athletes, they're just not developed yet. And it's hard to – you. I, the example I always use is if I said I want to be a doctor tomorrow, everyone would totally be accepting of me going four years of undergraduate and four years of you know, medical school and then you know, my residencies and everything. Everyone would be like, cool, that's the path you have to take, no problem, just work through it. But if I said, okay, you're, it's going to be eight years and we're going to have to work through it at this, everyone thinks you're crazy in sport. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that is. And in some things, it's completely acceptable. And other things, it's like, no, you have to do it tomorrow. So we have to make sure your weight is down to your exact weight within a pound of what you would win an Olympic medal at eight years from now. That's crazy. Yeah, it's interesting. It's no one. It's very hard to go and you know you want to do you know macros or whatever, and it's you know often you know just talking about grocery shopping and like you know the tools to cook for yourself and stuff are probably more effective long term solutions. You know, correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just want to clarify. So, you, do you do you personally look at power to weight, or do you try and focus mostly even just like well, you know, I only do that for I look at it. I don't. Uh, communicate that a lot of times with my athletes, but I look to where they are to as a projection sure. of maybe where they could be. But generally, I don't. I that's that's maybe a once a month deal. Yeah. Most of the time, I just look at say, here's what your three minute power is this month or this day, and here's what it was the day before and the day before that. And I really look at just their powers, and I don't normally compare them. Um, some of the masters athletes and more of the citizens grand fondo athletes i'll look at it because we can make some improvements but that's generally we're doing it for health Mm -hmm. not for performance so the weight issue ends up being a health thing not a a performance and again we're talking basics in that you know they probably need to be a little more active off the bike and they need to you know eat well and sleep better and you know. And really, those basic things, once we communicate it to them and you see a positive effect in the weight, the whole family is happy, the person's happy, and they needed the weight loss anyways, but it's more from activity, like you say. Mm-hmm. And, and better choices, but these choices are general. They're not. I believe that everyone knows what to do, yeah. mostly in life. It's just whether we choose to do it or not. Totally. I just wrote a nutrition book that was pretty much 250 pages of like, you know what healthy foods are. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And everyone knows what hard work is. Yeah. Yep. Now do we do so. Awesome. So moving on, um, maybe related, but in terms of athletes you've worked with for those 10 years and even longer, um, have you seen any trends in terms of the ones that last longer in a sport, you know, without getting, you know, chronic injury or burning out mentally or physically? Huh, I, I think the ones that have, I guess the word that comes to mind is resilience. I think you're going if you're trying to push yourself and do things, you're going to have an injury and you're going to have stresses and you're going to break down. And I don't think that that's negative. I think that a lot of, I, 
there's a quote, I can't remember who it's from, but it basically says that why do we worry about being happy all the time when it's all the stresses and negativity many times in our life that shape us. And so we look at it as like we're supposed to have a perfect diet, perfect training, perfect this, and then that's going to get you this perfect result. When in reality, you have to push your body, you have to push your mind. And so, for example, supplements or we try to utilize external sources that actually will hurt the adaptation of what we're trying to gain physiologically. So I'll use antioxidants as an example. So a lot of times when you go through a lot of oxidative stress, then your body compensates, you adapt and you move on. But if you supplement it, then actually you don't get the stress to your body, which would lead to the adaptation, which was the whole goal to begin with. So we need the stress mentally and physically to adapt just as you can train your stomach to kind of absorb a little bit more carbohydrate, you train your mind to deal with a little bit more stress and uh, discomfort riding, and then actually your body adapts as well, physiologically. So I don't, I think that that's all necessary, and I don't know why we think of it so negatively. Mm. Okay, I think that's I think that's good. Um, <laughs> I think that's good. Yeah. No, I think that's, I mean, again, it, it sounds basic, but it's, you know, I guess I'm, in, 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 when you do a, a communication or podcast like this, people walk away and go, man, I didn't learn anything. Oh, I don't think I don't so. have hardly anything <laughs> to offer other than there's no crazy trends, there's no crazy training, there's no crazy diet, there's no, nothing. all the minutiae that I've seen over all the years it's just, it's kind of like common hillbilly sense to a point. Peter, did you know what donating just $10 a month to the Wide Angle Podium Network would get you? I'm not sure. Well, that puts you at superstar level. At superstar level, you are the star. And in that case, you get bonus content from the Wide Angle Podium shows, all of them, not just us, and a sticker pack, pretty sweet. Also, you get entered into a contest where you might even win one of Molly's books. Woo! And I have to just throw this out there. For just $15 a month, you're a rock star, and you get all of that bonus content, the stickers, and a t-shirt. I don't even have a t-shirt. Do you have a t-shirt from Wide Angle Podium? No, they didn't give me a t-shirt. We don't have t-shirts, so you'll be cooler than us. Anyway, head over to wideanglepodium.com slash donate to help the network out and keep shows like ours on the air. Thanks so much. So you're saying that your philosophy hasn't changed because of your parents. Yeah, so my coaching philosophy, as far as the philosophy, hasn't changed much at all. Um, Maybe some of the techniques or how we measure it physiologically or some of the tools we've used to create more accuracy may have. But mostly that's come from my parents of how to hold myself and the athlete accountable, um, how to be a good person, how to do the right thing whenever there's like really a high level of stress. That's where it's come from. So it's, it's in one hand, it was really hard. And then in the other hand, it's really easy because it's who you are. So people ask me, do I train women differently in men? It's, and I don't. And I've never treated any of the women as like, oh, you're a woman, so you got to do this or you got to do that. Or I just treat them the way my parents would have expected me to be through all my sporting career and life. And so that's the way I do it. And it's none of it's by design. It's just who I am. So, yeah. Okay. As far as, I mean, I think similar related topic as far as resiliency and stuff, um, you have athletes who, I'm thinking Rebecca Rush, I guess, as far as leading it, but um, is it Rush or Roosh? I just pronounced it horribly. Rush. Yeah. <laughs> you okay. were good. Oh, I overthought it again. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> um, anyhow, as far as athletes switching sports and continuing to be successful, she comes to mind as someone you've worked with um, and has done that. So um, when you have someone who's, who's you know, going to change sports or start taking on another sport, um, how do you look at that as a coach and how do you support that? Well, there's one thing with the first sport. Uh, a lot of times if it was 
I would want them to have gone through the first sport to kind of an ultimate conclusion, which is like com- either complete failure or success, but they really tried as opposed to get to where it just gets really hard. And then they just wanted to switch because they didn't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. That's rough for me. I'd rather someone go through it, kind of fail, and then you switch. That's fine. But I feel like you have to kind of go to the ultimate conclusion to get through that rough patch to understand that it's going to be the same whether, again, in our example, whether it's medical school or business or another sport, it's you're going to get to the same spot. And it does – that's why that burnout, overtraining, whatever, that's what I meant before where people find out what they have to do to succeed and they're just not willing to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's one side of it. And then like Katarina Nash went to two Olympics as skiing, cross-country skiing, and then she went to three as in, in mountain biking. So obviously if you have the talent and the discipline, you, you can do it. And I, I think switching sports is not that big a deal as long as um, – well, you have to have some of the ability, you know, and then you can't switch from sprinting to endurance sports, but yeah. Okay. Is, is that, are we yep. making sense there? Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, and I think that's important too, because I mean, that relates to resiliency, right? Like, cause if, if you're not going to push yourself, then you're not going to do it again. You're not going to learn anything even just for life. Right. Well, yeah, I think that one thing that if I could tell everyone, including the athletes and have them actually hear and listen is that everyone goes through all the same things you're going through. They just kind of keep going mm-hmm. and, yep. and not so hard on themselves to the point of it's debilitating. So, or they don't take it to extreme. So for example, you can get failure, but that doesn't mean, okay, now I've got to lose more weight to have my power to weight ratio. And then you go down a, another negative road. And then you get an injury, and then you need to come back faster from the injury, so now you get a secondary injury. It's all those kind of things that going, okay, I got injured. This is normal. I got to rehab this. I've got to take my normal path, get back into it. Everyone gets very insecure, coaches most importantly, so they don't argue or protect the athlete and keep them secure and saying, stop. You got to stop training. We've got to, even if a big event is coming, knowing that, yeah, you, you'll you be fine. And this isn't going to define you. And all of those buzzwords that we use, you just got to be disciplined and resilient and keep going and don't quit. Awesome. Yeah. That's good. Um, speaking to Rebecca's um, other challenges she's taken on, can you sort of lead us through what she did over, that was last fall, I believe, or? Last the winter. Kilimanjaro? Yeah, yeah. So as far yeah, as so her, because she would have to have skills and stuff that she had to learn, right? Well, um, Rebecca's pretty, it, she's the term, you know, if her name could be resilience, but yeah, um, she's done a number of different things. So whatever she embarks on, it's generally an endurance of will type of event. And so she understands all that, but she does a lot of due diligence before. And my portion of that was in the altitude training side of it. So she decided to hike and ride up Mount Kilimanjaro to whatever it is, 19,000 feet. Um, So a portion of it was carrying her bike, a portion was riding up it, and then riding back down it. And my portion was the altitude side. So what we did was... We have the um, U.S. Olympic Training Center here that has a high-altitude training room, and it you can change heat, humidity, altitude, and so on. So we came in here and tried to measure what her speeds were, what her um, oxygen saturation was, and some different things. So basically, we put her on a treadmill at 10% grade, at various altitudes from 9,000 feet to 17,000 feet with a 40-pound weight vest and just had her hike and try to get some numbers to know what her pacing should be, how long, what it could be as far as distance a day and um, different sections of altitude because obviously you're climbing a mountain. So we tried to go from 19 to 13 and then we came back the next day and did roughly 10 to 15 then the next day we started at 12 and went up to 17 and just to see so she had a feeling 
of how difficult it would be and what the pacing side of it. So that was the phys- pure physiological side of it. Hmm. Awesome. That's the side that I worked with on her. And then she did all the logistics and what she was going to, and she knows how to ride a mountain bike, obviously. So yeah. that's not a problem, but it's real, you start to kind of doubt yourself. So at 17,000 feet plus of what you can do and how you feel and what your pacing is. So that's really what we worked on. Okay. Now how, as far as pacing, how did she pace uh, the effort in, in the actual, you know, challenge? How did she pace it? Yeah. So in the room, what we did was we ended up looking at the saturation and when we were at very high altitude, she would get to a, like, 80, 78 was kind of the lowest and maybe just a tick lower of 78% of the O2 saturation. And so I could see it was very interesting because we do all this physiological measurement of a lot of things or a lot of physiological variables. And you could see, I could see from the outside, her face would just start to go a little bit pale whenever she went about 18 and she would start to kind of ventilate a little odd and she would just not feel queasy and not right and so we did that like three times within the room to try to get her to feel it and then that's kind of how she did it so we did have some heart rate stuff but you can't um when environmental conditions change and are variable and fatigue it's hard to use physiological variables to measure that fatigue so I feel like our biggest benefit was getting her to feel the sense when she was pacing a little bit too much or when she needed to get over an incline that was or some of the rock um, scree sections mm-hmm. of how hard it was going to be to kind of pace herself at different times. And then other times when maybe it was a little easier, yeah, she could pick up the pace a bit. So it's about develop and feel, which is kind of an odd thing to say in a it, physiological sense. It is, but it's funny. Like you see that supported so many times that like that perceived exertion is valuable. Um, And so, you know, I coach a lot of athletes towards Leadville, um, which is at altitude as well. And so it's everyone wants the wattage and the heart rate number that's going to magically get them to the top. And, you know, I do a very similar thing. You know, we can use heart rate and watts and, you know, but it's you got to go out and experience, you know, as best you can, ideally at altitude, but not everyone has that. But you know, knowing what it's like when you're sort of dipping over, right? And you're going to, you know, yeah. there's a, only well, the a solo. We don't use watts a lot of times is that you never know what the environmental conditions on the day are. And I've done a lot of testing. So, for example, in, in theory, you're peaked and tapered. So does that mean you get five watts more on average? Is that five watts for four hours? Is that five watts for nine hours? Mm-hmm. And where – so then you're starting to – you have a lot of variable variability in how you're prescribing that. And then on the day, we'll say it's 70 degrees. Then on the day, it's 100 degrees. Mm-hmm. So then that changes. Well, now it was plus 5 watts, but now since it's 100 degrees, it's minus 2 because it was plus 5, but now we're minus 8. And that means you did all the testing. But does that mean you did the testing for 9 hours of the complete Leadville if your goal was 9 hours? Does it mean – yeah. So it just gets so – I feel like we get so sidetracked on it. The, the idea of the power and the training is to get you to be the strongest you can be on the day, but you still have to have the feel because I find that coaches a lot of times are holding athletes back when they could have gone faster mm-hmm. for the field. Now, I do believe that some of the wattage for early sure. pacing of ultra endurance and even some time trials is okay, mm-hmm. but past that – you should have taught them the feel of pacing rather than the wattage and the big goal of it. So, yeah. That's yeah. My on that. For sure. Um, and I, I will link to, there's a video that you did for training peaks about altitude. So I'll link to that as well. Um, okay. Cause I'm yep. sure you talk about a lot of sort of this idea of performance at altitude in that. Well, that, um, that the idea with that talk too, is that once you have enough power data and you have some of our elevation corrected, um, WKO4 graphs, yeah. you can find out what it is individually. Because again, when we talk about altitude, are you have you lived at sea level? How acclimatized are you? Who are you? So we can correct that after the fact. Normally, that's a historical view to say when you did this power, roughly that was related to this sea level power for you, not for me, not for someone else, but it's specific for you. And I think that's the 
the role that that can really play is a specificity for the person, awesome. not for a general trend in altitude. So if you were going to give us our, your like world, your basics, uh, you know, advice for someone who is going to altitude um, but does is a sea level you know dweller, um, what would that be as far as how you could best prepare? I get that question a lot. Okay, so the the number one thing is that if you can't afford or you don't have the ability for tents or pre-acclimatization, you just show up the night before and race. And the important thing is just to work on your pacing. I find that a lot of times the alt- the sea level athletes can be fairly successful or at least get their best out of it, but it's their pacing that holds them back. So a lot of times they'll go out thinking, oh, well, it's really not that hard, but it catches up with them. And a lot of times the acclimatized athletes just go slower. They don't go harder. And they're not acclimatized that they actually go harder. They just know how to pace themselves at the beginning of the effort. So that's the first thing. If you can acclimatize, I do think you need about 14 days to kind of get over that initial hump of trying to get now, for Leadville, since we were talking about that, yeah, I'm not a big fan of going up to 10,000 feet for 14 days before the race, but I would say that if you can get to a 7,000-foot or 6,000-foot you know, adaptation cycle, that might be pretty good. The, the take-home message is if you can acclimatize for 14 days, good. If not, just focus on being as strong as you can, show up the night before, and then go race. Right. I like that. Awesome. Um, so let's talk here, you know, again, we're looking at all sorts of different sports and trying different sports. Um, so I have sort of two things I wanted to get knocked off here. So let's talk, you also coach outside of cycling, you coach some motocross, supercross guys, um, and then also some, uh, NASCAR, like car racing. Um, so how, for that, I would imagine you're doing a lot of physiology type work for those folks as well. Yeah, so um, I guess my the key principle in training is specificity. So if you want to be fast riding a bike, you got to ride a bike, or you want to be a fast runner, you got to run. So it's the same with motocross. If you want to be fast riding a motorcycle, you got to ride a motorcycle a lot. What we do is try to interject a lot of the training principles that maybe they would just go ride the motorcycle every day and not know when to go. They just do, similar to cycling and a lot of our age-graded sports, they just kind of go out and ride medium hard every day. So we've just tried to manipulate the intensities and the durations of the actual motocross effort and then how we supplement other training to benefit that. I would say that the just differing the time frames of the actual intervals and efforts in motocross is the majority of it. The supplementation or cross training or some of the other things that you might do is the minor part. And then we have a big problem with dealing with kind of heat and hydration because they have in the outdoor season two 30-minute motos and it could be in 100 degrees. So it's more about habits of hydration and adaptation to heat that maybe you would use in a triathlon or things like that. So we try to use some of the physiological principles of that to adapt it. And then NASCAR, is it's an interesting thing. The way I relate that, it's the same thing with the heat, is that it's basically like being on a, in a sauna because they have a fireproof underwear, fireproof suit, and helmet, and the exhaust of the car, the actual tubing exhaust, runs right under their feet to the point that they have to have heat shields on the heels of their um, shoes to limit their heels from getting burned. So say the track temperature is 120, the actual asphalt. In the car, it can be 130 plus at their feet to 100 100 plus at their head. So we always, it's not that hard, like the drivers themselves, they tell me this, this is not my own experience, but they're like, Dean, it's not that hard to drive the car. It's just hard to keep your concentration over four hours. So it's like being in a sauna and you're just putting a nut on a bolt over and over and over again for four hours and then just never dropping it or never not getting threads right or something like that. It's more of a 
concentration thing that pretty soon it's back to that will thing. You just kind of lose interest and you don't want to do it because you're just hot and uncomfortable. Hmm. So as far as the heat training for them, they would be using saunas then in addition yeah, to actual so car driving? Yeah, we do some supplemental training or we just go out and ride our bicycle in the heat of the day and do hmm. things like that too. So right. they're used to a, kind of a, just a long aerobic effort in the heat. So, hmm. yeah. Have you, um, I'm sure you have, followed a lot of the stuff right now with heat and sort of using heat as a altitude um, adaptation technique? Yeah, there's basically two papers out there, and I'll, I'll try to send them to you afterwards, and maybe you can link them. And one is a, a reference that combining heat and altitude has a performance increase, and then another exact same paper, similar, says combining heat and altitude or the adding the heat doesn't help performance. So right now it looks like there's some help if it was more of a hot environment at altitude, but a little bit more of a gray area, maybe that if you just did heat training, have kind of similar effects in a non-heat-related um, performance or competition, I should say. So I, I don't think you – generally you can't go wrong with heat training mm -hmm. because you're on your aerobic days anyway, so it doesn't matter and it doesn't take long to get an adaptation to, say, the plasma volume. I think we're, you know, 10 to 14 days. Yes. So – and if you did it on the aerobic days, it doesn't hurt you. It's when you try to do it all the time or you tr try to do it within the intensity days is where you could run into problems. You can also supplement it with saunas and bat, hot baths and different things like that. But I, I, that w when we start talking about those kind of things, those are one percenters. And generally, you can screw it up 10% for a 1% gain. So, But yes, I'll try to send those papers so people can that'd, refer to That would be awesome. Um, so next one, I'm just trying to knock some off here. Uh, we had qu a couple questions about trimps. Um, are you familiar with trimps? Yeah, the training impulse score, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you see people using that very much anymore? Like in my world, TSS has sort of taken over a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's the old banister model. Yeah. And I shouldn't say old is in bad. It's just they had limited measurement. And so TSS is measured off of a, a non-physiological variable of power. Mm -hmm. So and then the idea is that you have an average power or a normalized power, which is a little bit different, and you know how that relates to your threshold. So we would call that an intensity factor. And then you add time to that, and that gives you TSS. The example, if people are unfamiliar, is that you can do four hours easy, or you can do one hour at your threshold, and those both have a similar amount of stress or training stress score to them, depending on how hard you go. And prior to this, we could only say, well, you could guesstimate in your mind that, oh, I did a 30-minute power very, very hard, and then I did a four-hour ride very easy, but you wouldn't know how to relate those two. You would just say, oh, the 30-minute power really hard was much more stressful towards the training load. But now we're trying to accumulate all the variability within the intensity, a ride, a race, to put a training stress score to it. And that's, again, historically. So you're looking for a TSS by day over time of 40, say, I think the um, default in most of the WKO4 programs is 42 days for a chronic training load and seven days for an acute training load. So then the idea is that you take those loads and see where you produced your best, say, after the loads or during the loads or what the demands of the racing was. So that's the idea. Awesome. So to I will link to the some TSS stuff as well from the Training Peaks website. Um, I have to add, this makes me, I keep saying I'm going to make up acronyms and just start dropping them into training conversations, and TRIMPS really feels like one that I would have made up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So basically, in your opinion, people are generally better using TSS, um, especially as cyclists, but would you say for a multi-sport athlete, like, would TRIMPS ever come into play anymore? Well, I think that for a multi-sport athlete, it's probably more accurate um, because you're getting a historical load. 
because I feel like multi-sport athletes end up getting into that kind of gray area of doing everything medium. And so you need some type of total volume load-based number or kind of in trend or indication. It doesn't have to be like 101 versus 99. It has to be like your trend when you've gotten an injury was to accumulate so much load or your trend when you've always performed best was you had this much load. So I would say that's what I think it's much more useful for that. If I looked at a TSA for a Tour de France athlete, you'd be like, holy crap, we're really never going to train like that. But maybe we should at different times or maybe we can section it off. There's some things to be learned from that. Okay. I think yeah, that's sure. that's good. And so um, I think the last question to finish on that was a science-y one. But again, we had a couple questions about it. So hopefully folks are interested. And again, TSS is something that, you know, there's – that's getting easier and easier to use and access. So I think a lot of people can start accessing that ability to sort of keep track of, you know, like you say, their load. So sort of like the weights they're using in the weight room, rather than just counting how many reps you do, you actually can see, you know, how that correlate or how that combines with the actual weight that you're lifting, but in a, you know, again, in a cycling or a running sort of application. Yeah, you're trying to relate that, hey, here's my one rep max, and here's how close to that I work and then how many reps do I do and how much time during the workout and throughout the week and throughout the month do I do that and have I improved? And then where did I break down and what were my performance? I mean, there's that Dr. Andrew Coggan who kind of puts it a lot of time, once we go through all that, is that the best predictor of performance is performance itself and to relate it back to that elevation corrected power is you're trying to figure it out for you individually. And I think that's where a lot of the TSS and some of the chronic training loads help because you really figure it out for you that you can handle this much workload with your work schedule and how much you ride. And if it was mountain bike or road or multi-sport or climbing or whatever it is, you're trying to figure it out for you, not just because arbitrarily it says a, a hundred TSS is was a really hard day. So, um, yeah. And that just reminded me of a fault. So as they are doing heart rate TSS and pace TSS, are, yep. do you feel like that as long as the data is consistent and like, is that still a valid way to contribute to that, that chart? Yeah. Yeah. It's better than, well, let's put it this way. RPE is still a great, you know, help your rated perceived exertion. So that is always positive. Whenever you can put some stress from heart rate and RPE, you're trying to get whenever you have multiple variables, it does if the data in is bad, the data out's gonna be bad. So that's off the top. But if you can put some variables together, you may get a trend. And that goes with that rated perceived exertion, like how hard was today and how tired do I feel? That's important. But one caveat to that is that being tired is good sometimes. Being chronically tired and chronically doing medium work is not good. So you need to put yourself into some fatigue, but you need to rest. Like we talked about before, most people just don't rest enough. It's not the training that they're kind of afraid to do. Yeah, sometimes they're afraid to do really hard training, but they're much more likely not to rest enough. So that, I think, is the key. So if you can put the heart rate and the pace into the TSS, I think that's positive. Okay. Awesome. I think that's good. Um, yeah, I think let's finish on that. Um, unless you had anything else, Dean, as far as come to mind. No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. We've taken <laughs> up an hour of your time, which I know you, you know, you're a busy man, so we don't want to take up too much more. I could talk to you well, forever. You, I think you but. have a full recovery from Rio to do. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. I got to take some of my own advice. Like yes. I say, to everybody, yeah. I okay. Well, start. I'm going to go take a nap, right? <laughs> there you go. Nap and get your, everything else taken care of your good nutrition. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Coffee. Okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dean. It was my pleasure. I know Molly enjoyed it a lot yeah. of it too. So, yeah, thank you again for taking the time, right. and yeah, uh, we'll certainly send you all the links and link to all your your Twitters and stuff so people can follow along with you um, as well. All right, thanks you guys. Thank awesome. you, Dean. Thank you, right. Dean. Talk See to you soon. Bye. Bye. 
All right. We hope you enjoy this interview with Dean Golich. I personally got a lot out of it. It's always interesting to hear somebody talk so much about kind of getting back to the basics. You know, I wrote about it in my book and we talked about that, but we all know what's good for us for the most part. Uh, and Dean really kind of emphasizes that, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, anyway, let us know what you thought about this by either tweeting at Peter I, at Peter Glassford, or at Molly J. Herford. Uh, no, I'm not changing my last name, so it's not going to be changing to Molly J. Glassford anytime soon. Uh, and of course, please comment on the show notes over at consummateathlete.com. Check out the Wide Angle Podium Network at wideanglepodium.com. And please leave us a review on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much, and we will see you next time. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast over at The Consummate Athlete. Uh, before you go, we just wanted to remind you that the Wide Angle Podium Network donation drive is still going on. It's on until the end of August 2016, and we really need your help. So any donation you can make, whether that's a one-time or an ongoing donation, uh, is very much appreciated. There's something at all levels, and again, you can even consider if you have a business uh, putting in an ad, and that helps too and helps you in return. Absolutely. So check it out over at wideanglepodium.com slash donate. Thanks so much for listening. for tuning into this podcast over at The Consummate Athlete. Uh, before you go, we just wanted to remind you that the Wide Angle Podium Network donation drive is still going on. It's on until the end of August 2016, and we really need your help. So any donation you can make, whether that's a one-time or an ongoing donation, uh, is very much appreciated. There's something at all levels, and again, you can even consider if you have a business uh, putting in an ad, and that helps too and helps you in return. Absolutely. So check it out over at wideanglepodium.com slash donate. Thanks so much for listening.